0: Let him with you. Make him move you. Let him move you.
1: Episode 16 of Rank and Review. This week we're looking at anthologies with our returning guest, J. Adrian Cook. As usual, I'd like to warn my listeners that we will be talking spoilers and we will be talking with our typical foul language. So if that's a problem for you, uh, proceed with caution. Thank you so much for listening to Rank. Uh, we are going to do episode 16 of Rankin Review on Anthologies. Uh, my returning, returning, returning guest, J. Adrian Cook, is with me in my filthy garage to discuss anthologies.
2: Yeah, boy. Did,
1: did I force-feed you anthologies, or did you choose it? Now I'm trying to remember. <laughs> you
2: recommended it to me, and uh, I, this is not a force-feeding type of a situation. I was really looking forward to it.
1: We're licking at wounds after the terrible twos.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Uh, anthologies are basically short stories put on film. Yes. And the short horror story is one of my favorite genres out there. Uh, it
1: was sort of my gateway drug into horror fiction is I'm a slow reader or was a slow reader. I'm getting better in my old age. But uh uh yeah, that's why I like little ghost stories. I like little sort of five to 15 page, you know, get in, get out. Uh, either it does the job or it doesn't. But your investment was short enough that
2: <laughs> me as well. The. Thing about short horror stories is that it, it they're just a, it's better for the genre honestly than longer form fiction because in in terms of horror because you're not really sure if the hero or the protagonist is going to make it out of a short horror story whereas if you're reading longer fiction you can be pretty sure the person you've been set up to identify with is going to make it through the next chapter
1: of course there's no shortage of dour endings to horror movies but uh uh, i would say it's maybe like Say what? Twenty-five, thirty percent of your horror movies will end in a bad place, whereas with your short stories, it's more like fifty-fifty. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that would require a little bit more, more study, study. than we have
1: time. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Be, we'll, we'll crunch some numbers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know, I like it as a genre, and I like with for the films, uh, I find it interesting when they try, if they try, how they try and wrap it around, if it's a theme, or if there's uh, you know any kind of tether between these stories, other than they're trying to creep you out. In this selection, we have either they, they choose a format and run with it, or an author like Stephen King in a couple of places and run with that. Um, well, even then,
2: there's themes that tie all of the stories together.
1: Yeah. The weird thing about anthologies is, by the nature of their beast, is that it's not just one movie. It's, you know, in this case, anywhere between three and five mini-movies. So that's a lot of work for us as reviewers (laughs) to try and cover everything. Um, so what do you, what's your approach here? Are we going to do the highlight reel or are we going to, are we going to give a thumbs up and thumbs down, uh, to each individual segment? How do you want to
2: do this? Let's play it by ear, but promise to ourselves, we're going to keep it brief no matter what we <laughs> do, unless there's a story that deserves special attention, yeah. uh, whether it's extremely good or extremely bad, uh, we'll just mention it was
0: It left so-so its mark. and leave oh, yes. it
2: there. Yes.
1: All right. Um, Okay, well, let's say what the six films that we're going to be talking about are. The first we're going to discuss, and probably the most uh, tenuous as far as it being an anthology film, is The Signal. It does kind of feel like one film, but it's broken into three different transmissions done by three different directors.
2: It counts as far as I'm concerned. Yeah,
1: it's a legit. Yeah. So The Signal, uh, we're going to look at Twilight Zone, the movie. Um, this is sort of some A-list directors coming to the board. you Joe Dante's, or are Steven Spielberg's. Um, the recent uh, horror hit VHS, which is uh, found footage approaching the anthology. Um, sort of the cult-respected Halloween-themed movie, Trick or Treat. And then two Stephen King-themed uh, movies. We have George Romero's Creepshow and we have Cat's Eye. Uh, from the 80s, directed by Lewis Teague, who also directed uh, Cujo, uh, another Stephen King movie, which I actually quite like. Uh, Let's do it. I'm excited. Let's, Let's do it. it. That's it. That's all. You have nothing further to say in this introduction.
2: Oddly enough, no. No. Okay. Here we go. We'll go to the country and start a life. Leave. Go down to the station where we'll get on a train and we'll get her in our own private compartment. New Year's Eve, Terminal 13,
0: and Ben. Let's be in. Strange. The TV turned itself on. What's going on? Why isn't anything working? Everybody's on the hallway. That's the same sound that was coming through the phone. It's a memory. Really
1: <laughs> okay, so the first movie we're going to talk about is The Signal. Um, and uh, yeah, it's. I don't know if we're set in the future here, but this is a fictional environment, sort of world, in the city of Terminus. The name is Terminus, and it feels like a first draft choice to be called Terminus. Maybe maybe in the first draft of the script they wrote Terminus and thought they would come up with a better one later on, and they never got around
2: to it. I was going to ask what you thought was the meaning of Terminus, because honestly I'm drawing a blank here.
1: Yeah. Well, and, uh, I don't know, weirdly almost too appropriate considering the apocalyptic scenario that is playing out. Uh, it's a little bit on the nose. And the the movie is not that. In fact, I found the movie kind of hard to predict where it was going to go next. Uh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, that, that one little detail is almost off-putting to me, but I put it aside, and I'm glad I did, because overall I really did like The Signal.
2: The story is basically a... Strange signal starts getting broadcast over all televisions and radio. Uh, any signal that comes through, basically, is interrupted by this other strange signal which makes weird noises and weird colors. And people who see it turn sociopathic and schizophrenic. Yeah.
1: It's hard. It seems everybody is affected a little bit differently. I don't know if it's about how much you watch it or how much you're exposed to it or just uh, how close to the edge you were to begin with, but uh, we see several different people and how they react to this sort of apocalypse of
2: madness. Yes. So a boy and a girl, the girl is married. Her name is Maya. She is married to a man named Louis. And her lover is Ben. They decide they're going to leave town forever and leave Louis behind. But before they can do that, the signal takes over the whole city and things start going very, very wrong as they're attacked by random hordes of indestructible people who are crazy and want to murder each other
1: and this sounds sort of like typical zombie type of environment but it's not that exactly not necessarily everyone you encounter is out to kill you but everyone you encounter is mentally ill so uh, yeah it, it, it is an interesting environment and like i think that they were they were hoping to franchise this when this was made so we can see many stories that went on in terminus in this apocalypse um i i doubt that we're going to see a sequel to this but uh, It's an interesting enough conceit, and there would be a lot of stories to
2: tell. So, Transmission Mm 1. This is the story of Maya as she attempts to get to the train station to meet up with Ben. And as she goes to her car and tries to go back to her apartment where her husband is staying, she starts seeing creepy characters approaching her in the parking lot. And weird things happening in the hallway of her apartment building and yelling and people wandering around. And then we meet Louis, who is her husband, who seems to have been a little bit creepy and dangerous before he was exposed to the signal. Would you not agree? No, oh,
1: yeah. I think he already started at about an 8 out of 10 as far as, you know, being hyper-amped and slightly crazy. But this, this uh, broadcast, this signal uh put him over the top actually the actor playing Lewis is one of the few actors I recognized from the the, the film is A.J. Bowen, he does a lot of horror movies mm-hmm. he was in Hatchet 2 and he was in uh, the uh, House of the Devil and uh, he seems to like the genre so as a result I, I like him
2: he uh, was very good in this role uh, too
1: absolutely, absolutely and what I liked about him, even though he was a very hateful character and you really wanted to see him fall, in his head at every turn he was doing what was right indeed and that sort of made him not sympathetic but it made him a more interesting villain
2: yes and but of course it's the second story that really stars him yes Uh, maya is the main star of this and um the name of the fellow that she actually interacts with is rod uh, who makes a creepy-looking mace in order to defend himself <laughs> Correct from the weirdos who are attacking him. And as the story progresses and he tries to protect Maya, we discover that he, quote, has the crazy as well, <laughs> end quote. And is actually quite violent and dangerous to be around himself. And that's basically where the story ends off, is Maya fleeing from him. So, yeah decent first story it establishes the rules of the of the of the signal
1: yeah we we know that people are going crazy and we know that everyone reacts slightly differently
2: yes the strangers in this one i thought were particularly creepy Mm -hmm. in in the parking garage with when the guy just rushing over to talk to her Uh, (laughs) with this
1: weird youthful enthusiasm almost (laughs) so transmission two yeah, that's when we get a little sillier with it. We get a little stranger with it. <laughs> it's the funny one. Yes, indeed. And it's not like it's accidentally funny. It's very deliberate. In the performance, in the lines, and in the execution, all of a sudden we're allowed to breathe a lot more and we're allowed to laugh Yes, at the sort of ludicrous ridiculousness of the situation.
2: So Lewis has gone looking for Maya and has come in contact with a new kind of protagonist by the name of clark (laughs) and clark is not as of yet exposed to the signal and this story is like you say quite funny mostly because clark is the straight man and everybody that he's interacting with (laughs) is mentally ill at this point particularly lewis who tries unsuccessfully to navigate the world around him but usually just ends up murdering somebody yes
1: yes he gets frustrated and then that anger expresses itself through violence very quickly Mm -hmm. Uh, another interesting thing um these characters were to be hosting a new year's eve party i believe Um, and, uh, they keep on, they're, they're, they're expecting guests. They keep on trying to keep social normalcy going on in spite of the, the mad situation that they're sitting in. And it is funny. It's genuinely like amusing to watch, but I did find that the abrupt shift kind of, you know, uh, it didn't take me out of the movie exactly, but it made me kind of miss the, the creepy movie that I had been watching.
2: Well, that's one of the things I liked about it, honestly, is that it did introduce this, I'm not going to say lighthearted, but we'll say uh, funny aspect to it. And then as this story continues and Lewis gets more and more unhinged, you start feeling or at least i did i started feeling uh shame that i had been laughing earlier and this horrible twisting feeling in my stomach like this is not funny anymore yeah and it does that really really well
1: well and the, the main thing one of his main weapons in this is the uh extermination pump extermination pump i don't know what you call those things that are used to spray cockroaches or whatever. pest
2: control what you jiggies
1: yeah i don't know but he's he's like pumping this foul poison into these poor people's faces and mouths and it's uh really actually gets increasingly horrifying as it's going on and on and you're seeing the effect it's having and uh uh he's not particularly enjoying what he's doing either but he is not stopping it like (laughs) So, yeah, the escalating madness of it I really did like, but uh, I think they might have hit the humor a little harder than I would have, but it uh, what, what wasn't my movie.
2: So, Transmission 3... Yeah. Follows Ben in his journey trying to get to the train station to meet up with Maya.
1: Everybody's looking for Maya in this movie, basically. (laughs) Maya's looking for somebody, then her husband's looking for her, and then her boyfriend's looking for
2: her. Yes. (laughs) And lucky for Ben, he was very badly exposed to the signal, but he is able to see through it and think a little bit more clearly than everybody else.
1: I wasn't sure if this was the power of love or if it was the repeated heavy blows to the head that he was sustaining that was keeping him clear. (laughs) Well,
2: it seems as though being exposed to the signal makes you a little bit more impervious to damage, regardless of what it does to your... Uh, mind, because there is one blow which he takes from Lewis right near the edge of the van, which
1: looked like it would kill someone. It would be
2: fatal. Yeah. Definitely. There's there's a big blood splatter on the window of the van, and uh, you think to yourself, okay, end of story. Yeah, his van's just
1: been opened. Nope. Yeah uh and yeah it's interesting because uh we get flashes of i guess their madness what we see in their heads uh at one point uh, ben has lewis basically helpless on the floor and we see him basically smashing his head in with this uh metal (laughs) contraption and uh we snap out of that and we realize that that didn't actually happen. He was just sort of living that experience in his own mind. In the long run, it might have been better for everyone had he actually done that, but, uh... Again, it sort of keeps you uh, not sure where you are in the movie.
2: And let's not forget as well the very memorable scene where Clark reanimates Rod's head so that he can talk to it, but then realizes after Rod has delivered his message that it didn't actually happen. No,
1: none of that took place.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So the problem with this one, I think this was actually probably the weakest of the three, and mainly because I didn't understand... happened at the end so it seemed as though ben confused lewis to death yeah and i'm not really sure how he did that
1: he like convinced lewis that lewis was ben that that in fact uh the husband was not the the wronged husband the cuckolded husband he was actually the guy who was trying to steal the wife right yeah Um, and I guess he was already so fragile and so badly beaten that uh, it caused enough confusion that uh, and I think seeing all the fear in Maya's eyes too did a lot of that I I never really managed to feel sorry for Lewis I just didn't (laughs) (laughs)
2: no not very sympathetic character but uh, yeah once, once the Lewis is gone from the picture I thought it had a pretty satisfying ending yeah so this brings us to the whole idea behind the signal and the reason that I really like it is that it is actually quite an intellectual movie. At one point when Ben describes how he managed to get past what the signal was doing to him, he said that it that there is a like static that was covering up something very natural and very real inside and the signal is a lie, and it tries to make you do things, and the things that it makes you do are violent and uh, selfish, and in Lewis's case, it was kind of the American dream. He wanted to get Maya back so that he could live in a home with her and raise a family, And and nothing was going to stop him from getting that. Yeah. And these are the same criticisms that can be leveled at modern media that the signal is yeah it just makes funny noises and weird sounds but it does all the same things that people say that modern media do
1: right and is it driving us crazy is it is mm-hmm. it actually causing more madness and violence in the world than it is Indeed. preventing yeah yeah again i didn't i guess i didn't think as deeply about it as you did when i was watching the movie but uh yeah i think that that is definitely there um and, uh, yeah, the few people who aren't immediately affected is because Maya's listening to a, a mix CD given to her by her lover. <laughs> so she's tuned out the media, so she's temporarily, uh, you know, left out of the craziness. <laughs> yes,
2: and it's that mix that brings her back to, to sense. The, the real feeling inside of what Ben felt for her yeah. comes through the music.
1: I did get a little bit of, you know, the fifth element is love <laughs> feeling uh, <laughs> out of that, but uh, the movie earns it, so...
2: Yeah. So my final feelings were, uh, this is a great movie. can be enjoyed on many levels. You can watch it for the Splatterfest because there sure is a lot of gore and blood, mm-hmm. and uh, in particular, I think... Rod trying to swing a hatchet while all of his limbs are broken, that's gonna stand <laughs> out in my, in my memory. But then it's also got this, uh, wonderful message behind it that you can, you can ponder after you've seen the movie. And as a final, uh, coup d'etat, I actually, for some reason, after I saw this movie, before I went to bed, I locked all the doors in the house. <laughs>
1: (laughs) Wow. Yep. That is high praise. Yep, it unnerved me.
0: (laughs) On June 24th, four acclaimed directors, George Miller, John Landis, Joe Dante, and Steven Spielberg, take you to another dimension.
1: On the motion picture um john landis uh directed the wraparound story and the first segment uh so i would start there it's hard doing a plot breakdown on these but uh basically we open on uh, a couple of guys played by albert brooks and uh dan Aykroyd driving through the night and killing time and basically keeping each other company
0: <laughs>
1: and um I really like it. it's sort of a nice sort of light opening to the proceedings. It's funny, it's charming, and it sort of feels like we're meeting uh well, two victims. Something bad is gonna happen to these guys, <laughs> right? We know we're watching Twilight Zone the movie. Um and in typical Twilight Zone fashion there's a twist.
2: <laughs>
1: Indeed. Um, and, uh, it sets the tone for the, at least if not the movie, what a typically or a good twilight zone story does for me is that, uh, it sets up a series of events where you think, you know, where it's going and then it just sort of surprises you just a little bit at the end. It, it has that little twist
2: and also sets up the, the twilight zone movie as a tribute to the elder show as well. When they talk about some of their favorite older episodes,
1: yeah. we've talked about this in the past episodes too. um, I think it was Chris Hardwick said that uh, Twilight Zones can sort of be whittled down to a nice try, asshole. <laughs> There's usually some weird like twist or, 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 or a moral breakdown that happens at the end of the episode that's like, oh, it could have been good for you, but no, sorry. Nice try, asshole. Yeah, yeah. That's very clever. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, All he wants to do is read, and the world has been blown up. And uh, he's in uh, a library with thousands and thousands of books, but he breaks his glasses.
2: Nice Um, try, asshole. You know what? I'm actually remembering an old Twilight Zone now, the one (laughs) where the guy figures out he can stop time, and then there's a nuclear attack, and he stops time, and he can't enjoy his gift anymore, because if he gets time going again the world will be destroyed nice, nice try, try asshole <laughs> exactly um
1: <laughs> not all of the stories uh in this movie uh fall under that category but i do think that the best twilight zones do and uh, and now that you have that in your head you'll always have that in your head anytime those things happen <laughs> nice try asshole <laughs> so the first one time out Starring Vic Morrow, who gave
2: his life for this motion picture and this segment in it. He and two Vietnamese kids. If you haven't heard about this, here's what happened. They were shooting a scene. It's supposed to be taking place in a Vietnamese village. And Vic Morrow, his character, who's a character name, I can't remember. Anyway, he's saving these two kids when an American helicopter hovers over them and starts shooting at them. Well the in real life the pyrotechnics de-enameled the rear rotor on the helicopter which made it spin out of control and killed vic morrow and the two kids in fact decapitated him
1: yeah ugly stuff and landis was out of the business for a little while as a result of it uh and you know if nobody's happy when something like that goes on set and it you know lended some uh, pretty ugly notoriety to the film before it hit theaters (laughs)
2: indeed and and unfortunately it also kind of ruins the story yeah there's a seg part of it's missing and
1: you can sort of tell I think
2: when you watch it you're just kind of confused by what's going on I mean you were getting the idea that he was learning his lesson about racism yeah basically
1: the story is a a racist bigot sexist jerk off who's at a bar (laughs) having a few drinks after work and uh, blaming all of his problems on, you know, what he thinks of as the dregs of society is basically uh, gets uh, unstuck in time, you know, uh, pilgrim style. And uh, all of the places he encounter are harsh lessons on where intolerance and uh, racism can lead.
2: Yes, he's cast as the victim of racism and intolerance in each of the places he goes uh, Nazi Germany and Vietnam and where else? Wasn't there a lynching? Oh yes, that's right. Yeah. There's a lynching. Good times. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I don't
1: know. I don't know where they were in the filming or if the the story was meant to end where it is. I assume it must have since that film was shot. Uh, but the last thing we see of this guy is him stuck on the back of a train that's headed off to uh take him and a bunch of other Jews to the ovens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he learned his lessons that racism is wrong. He learned his lesson that being a bigot and a racist is wrong, but it was too late. Nice try, asshole. Nice try, asshole.
2: Well, (laughs) the problem with this one is that we really, like, okay, great lesson, guys. Racism is bad, okay? You know, like, come on. We saw where this was going after the first scene. We didn't need to see more of it.
1: I didn't get that Scrooge at Christmas morning uh, moment from him either where he, like, he 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 had that turn where he realized that he was wrong and the, 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 um, he was he was scared because he was the one being victimized. But I didn't feel like he was learning anything other than how to be scared shitless.
2: Yeah, well maybe that scene was in there and then it got didn't get filmed. Yeah,
1: there's just a lot of unanswered questions here. But yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I actually like the introduction to the movie more than I like the first segment.
2: Yes. And speaking of disappointing segments, let's move on to segment number two, Kick the Can.
1: Yes, uh, this is written by Richard Matheson, who I like, and Spielberg, who I try to like. And uh, this movie does not belong in the Twilight Zone one. It was reminds me of like the TV show when they had one of those like family-friendly, moral lesson tales. Where I'm like, no, I watched Twilight Zone to be scared. And what's this story doing
2: here? <laughs> I would imma- imagine maybe there were things like this in the original twilight zone series maybe they weren't all scary but like i say i haven't seen it
1: they all have a sense of wonder or a supernatural angle to them but they're not necessarily uh horrifying every time
2: well i would have been able to tolerate the story of this if it had been executed better yeah it was just atrocious (laughs) Uh, Yes, the dialogue is repetitive and on the nose. The worst dialogue I've heard in a long time, it's delivered uh, over the top and hammy by the old people, and then once they become children... They lose that and become wooden instead. Uh, Wooden, but adorable. (laughs) Um, And that one kid doing that awful English accent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, a bunch of uh, elderly people living in a a care home uh, meet a... Uh, a magical
2: scatman, Carruthers. Yes. Uh, because he only plays that one character in everything that he's in. Uh, yeah, and he invites them
1: to play a game of Kick the Can, and they get to learn what it's like to be kids again by becoming kids. And mm. it's sweet, and it eats up a good 20 minutes of this movie, and I resent every minute of it. <laughs> It's like, couldn't we be watching, you know, 1941 or The Lost World or one of the other really shitty Spielberg movies? Like, (laughs) and considering the crop of stories that they selected for this movie, this is clearly the odd one out. Like, I don't know where they thought it fit. This this sort of reeks of no one says no to Spielberg. (laughs) You know, (laughs) this is the story he needed to tell, even if it wasn't necessarily right for what the, the movie was presenting us.
2: Yeah, and I'm not sure if this was bad directing or or if Spielberg was doing a tribute to old lighting effects, but it was really overused, that mirror effect where they shine the light in in an actor's eyes when he's saying something really sincere.
1: Overused, Spielberg. And just the the heavy-handed musical cues and, like... Uh, You know, short of actually having the subtitle on screen saying, cry now, cry now, (laughs) cry now. Again, this wasn't a story that I wanted, and it wasn't a particularly well-executed one, you know? Yeah. Um, it seemed like someone's, you know, trying to emulate Spielberg more than it felt like Spielberg in a lot of
2: ways. Indeed. Uh, Shame, Steven Spielberg. Let's move on. Moving on. Let's not done. dwell
1: on this issue. Things get a little bit more interesting in the next chapter, which is directed by uh, Joe Dante.
2: This uh, one is called It's a Good Life.
1: Yeah, uh, and uh, they did borrow it from an original episode, I believe. I don't have a very clear memory of it, but the concept of a little kid that has the power to bring to life anything he imagines uh, is is a familiar story to me. If it's not from the Twilight Zone, I definitely bumped into it somewhere.
2: <laughs> a woman... Yes, I'm trying to remember the name of town. the actress who plays her. Kathleen Quinlan. Kathleen Quinlan drives into a, a little town one day and meets a little boy named Anthony, who she believes is being abused by the townspeople. Yes, it's his Uh, birthday and no one seems to care. Yes, (laughs) but as she gets more acquainted with Anthony and his little freak show running, she discovers that he's actually a horrible tyrant Mm -hmm. and trapping people in his clutches to live this obscene family life. And I think this is a very good story. Yeah. Very good concept, anyway.
1: Uh And it's played very cartoonishly, uh, and that, that you can attribute to Joe Dante, who just loves the Warner Brother cartoons. We mm-hmm. actually see a, a, a Tasmanian devil live and in person at one point, and it's
2: quite horrifying. That was really cool, I thought. <laughs> yeah. With the cartoonish dialogue, I found that it was actually... A little bit disconcerting at first because we had just gone through a segment where everyone was hamming it up and yeah. then everyone was doing it again and you're like oh, oh god this more was our of this. payoff
1: for waiting through kick the can though, right? yeah
2: <laughs> but then we realize as the story goes on that we these people are actually hamming up their dialogue on purpose. Cause to please, oh, to to please today, the kid. Everything's fine, yeah. you know. The horror behind
1: their smiles is what really makes it work. uh, uh, uh mccarthy is it anthony mccarthy i can't remember he was in the original invasion of the body snatchers he sort of plays the uncle character in this and i particularly enjoyed his performance <laughs> his uh you could see he was smiling big but his eyes were not smiling with it at all and you, you kept on asking questions like How long have these people been there? And where is his original family? Or did he ever have one? Like, is he actually a little boy at the end (laughs) of all of this, you know? Uh, Every corner you look in in this story is creepy and uh, I like that about it a lot. Mm -hmm. The imagination in it is great and like the way that this little boy's imagination expresses itself is like exactly what
2: a little boy would probably imagine
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and yet horrifying <laughs> yes and and it has to the, the the creepiness of kids mm-hmm. uh, kids can be uh, that much less empathetic than teenagers and adults yeah. and Anthony murders people yeah and it doesn't feel that bad about it no uh
1: or or, or the, I remember being quite scared I saw this at a young age um the one girl that we only see from behind for a really long time that uh, was his sister. Yes. But she had the nerve to lose her temper with him and say some cruel things, so he removed her mouth.
2: Yes. Then the cure for Anthony is a little bit of discipline, as we find out near the end. Mm-hmm. Not going too much into that. Great story. Yeah. Liked it.
1: Yeah, uh, he, he he realizes he needs more than yes-men in his life. He needs an actual parental figure. Is he able to, to allow her to, to rule him? We don't know.
2: But... We will never find out. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably some more horrifying things are going to happen, but... It's the beginning of a new story, which we get to imagine for ourselves. Yeah,
1: but it was a nice way to wash out the bitter taste of the previous segment.
2: Indeed. And
1: it uh, leads us to the grand finale.
2: Segment for Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Mm -hmm. John Lithgow. (laughs) John Lithgow. He plays a man who's afraid of flying, who gets on a... Airplane flight, and as he's looking out the window, believes he sees a gremlin destroying the plane outside. Yes. And proceeds to freak out and has to find a way to stop the gremlin but also not freak out the stewardesses on the flight who try to sedate him and hold him down he's already very anxious
1: and nervous just to be on the plane just to be flying he's like already a high-strung fellow and to add this on top of it of course nobody believes him uh john lithgow now uh i do like the man i think that he's a very talented actor but i think he is one of these people that is always at 11 You know, very rarely do you get a subtle performance from John Lithgow. Uh, I think this is masterful casting. This is using him to his best effect. Because you completely buy why the people sitting around him would think this guy is fucking crazy. Like, there's (laughs) just nothing good's going to come from sitting next to this guy. Can I switch seats with anyone else, please? Um... But you also believe that he's not crazy and that his panic is legitimate. And uh, it takes rather extreme circumstances for us to, you know...
2: Well, I don't know about that. I think it's rather ambiguous as to whether or not he's imagining the Gremlin, particularly because of the way that the director juxtaposes the Gremlin looking in and grimacing. And then Mm -hmm. in the next scene, you'll see John Lithgow looking out of the window with that another horrible grimace on his face. You start wondering, is this thing really... Did he just catch Damn. his own
1: reflection for yeah. a second there? Uh, well, again, I took it very literally. Again, I saw it at a young age. There was a gremlin there. And I think the movie wants us to know that there's a gremlin there at the end. But Definitely, uh, yes. Uh, this is the other one that was done by Richard Matheson. And I actually think that the the screenplay for this episode of The Twilight Zone and the infamous episode of the uh, original Star Trek, where Kirk gets split into evil Kirk in the teleporter, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was also written by Matson. Uh, more so than a lot of his books, sort of established him as like a king of sci-fi and horror writing because they're great stories. Yeah, the the idea of taking a already anxious scenario, which is flying, and I, I I sort of believe everybody's a little bit scared of flying. There are people who are a lot scared of flying, and that it really affects them. But I think everybody knows when you're in one of those metal contraptions flying at twenty thousand feet in
2: uh, a lot of turbulence and a storm. I might add.
1: Yeah. yeah you just don't you shouldn't be here what are we doing up here this is madness you know (laughs) and you don't believe that even though your seat is a flotation device that's going to help you when you come crashing down to earth you know so yeah everybody has that fear and it's well exploited here so
2: yeah great performance by john lithgow just over the top enough to be convincing so that's about it for takes the twilight, us to yeah. the
1: end of the twilight zone the movie we do get a little sort of uh, button ending to it which brings us back to the beginning but uh yeah uh so it starts slow the first two stories... Bleh. The second two stories... Yay! So in the end, uh, it's a fairly mixed review for me, which uh, is fairly typical for I find for anthology films. Different writers, different directors mean sort of different flavors throughout the film.
2: Okay, here's the deal. we got to break into this house, and all we have to do is steal this one VHS tape. You, you got it? Yeah.
0: What is it? I don't know, man. Let's just look at these tapes, okay? so special about like this tape anyway.
1: <laughs> what was that? Um, so we're going to talk about VHS, uh, this is a really interesting format, I, I find, that they've got here. Um, all of the films in this found footage anthology film uh, are supposedly VHS tapes. So someone's recorded and collected these weird things. Even though one of them is a conversation over Skype that we're seeing. It, it's a someone's personal collection of bizarre videotapes. Um, it sort of starts with this crew of ridiculous criminals it is sort of like the dark side of jackass if you can imagine like the the crew from jackass only they were legit criminals who did horrible acts but were still just stupid enough to film themselves doing it (laughs) Uh, they get tasked to go to a spooky house and acquire a vhs tape and when they get there they find a room full of vhs tapes they find a dead body and uh, they're not sure which tape they're to get, so they start rolling footage. And the stories that we are then subjected to make up the the stories in the anthology. I thought the premise was solid enough, and uh, I thought that, you know, they justified the low budget with the format, uh, and that with some exceptions, for the most part, they did well with it. Uh, J. Adrian
2: Cook, what did you think of VHS. Well, let's go by a uh, story-by-story basis here. We'll start with the overplot, which is entitled Tape 56. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, this was unfortunately a very weak story. Um, which tied all the rest together, and unusually, it ends right before the second or the the last story begins. Yeah, usually
1: you get all the stories, and then you know they wrap up the wraparound, but they yeah. opted not to go that route, which was interesting anyway. But
2: the basic story is there's a bunch of assholes, and they die. Yeah. So there's not much to talk about there. We see <laughs> them doing stupid shit, and then they're they're dead. Moving on, <laughs> amateur night.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, for me, personally, uh, the first story, once we get into the stories, was the clearly the strongest story of the
2: bunch. Agreed. Um, it starts off a little rocky, because we are introduced to another group of assholes who go woo all the time. Yeah, and we just sort
1: of gotten away from one group of assholes to be embraced into another, which was kind of
2: unfortunate. But that's okay, because the story which happens after this is so horrifying that you will forget your misgivings. We have three guys who decide to go and do a reality porno movie uh, by a pair of glasses that have a secret camera. Spy camera of some kind. Embedded in them. And the idea is that they're going to... Find some woman who wants to get fucked, and then do her, possibly with two or three of them, and Half then went. the memento
1: of it, had yes. it all recorded.
2: And they find a woman, and her name
1: is Lily. Before anything goes wrong, almost the second that you see her, there's something wrong with this chick. Like you just like uh, you, you are made uncomfortable by her presence right away at least i was
2: <laughs> indeed and then it, it each time she, she she has basically only one line of dialogue each time she says it it gets more and more chilling yes i like you yes <laughs> i like you and as the evening rolls on she begins to exhibit more and more inhuman signs and then well it doesn't turn out very well for our heroes yeah um all of the things that make
1: really good found footage movies work well, uh, are exemplified, I think, in this first story, because uh, the shaky camera, because he's wearing the glasses on his face, is richly justified. And the fact that he's not cutting the footage, you always have that question, why don't they just stop the recording? Well, uh, I'm sure about halfway through his experience, he has totally fucking forgotten that he's recording all of this in his glasses, <laughs> right? Um, the graphic violence and the fairly graphic nudity that we're subjected to in this segment right out of the gate, uh, is also drawing because of the reality with which it is handled. Uh, It just makes you feel like you're watching a snuff film more than you're almost comfortable with. And I remember watching that going like, Jesus, this is the first story. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
2: Bravo. Bravo on that first segment. (laughs) Absolutely. Indeed. The next is called Second Honeymoon follows a young couple as they travel together and they're stalked by a mysterious stranger yeah very um, weak i found <laughs> yeah but it has a sense of dread in it during the night segments when we see the stranger taking the camera and
0: yeah.
2: doing things to the uh, to the couple but it it's kind of ends senselessly i suppose it's supposed to have a twist but Whatever, I think we can move on.
1: I just want to say that that particular segment was probably directed by the biggest name of the bunch, Ty West. Is sort of coming up in, in the horror genre. And I'm a defender of Ty West, uh, so surprised and disappointed me that, that that was one of my least favorite segments in the movie.
2: Uh, yes. The third segment is called Tuesday the 17th, which is, I think, unfortunately, is another throwaway. Yeah. Uh, a group of assholes <laughs> goes out in the countryside and they are killed. Yeah. The end. Didn't yeah. really like any of them. Didn't care that they died, and uh, we can just forget about them.
1: There's a reputation that this film has as being uh, misogynistic, um, and I, I can understand how someone would watch this movie and think that the theme of you know men being complete pigs and assholes is well explored in many of the stories but the stories were were all produced and directed and written independently and then assembled into this film so that weird undercurrent of sadism and sexism was uh creepily not delivered it just sort of happened um i don't think i hated that one uh, that episode as much as you did i thought it was kind of a cheat that you know that they used you know Blurry footage, so that we never really saw what, where the, who was dealing this death, but uh, some it, kind of glitchy monster. Yeah, I appreciated that that one had the momentum that the previous story hadn't. Uh, I, I think the thing with the Ty West style is he likes to slowly, slowly get into your nerves and creep you out, and that works long form, but not so much short form. Um, this was basically, yeah, like a Friday the Thirteenth
2: condensed to ten minutes. <laughs>
1: mm. Only you never saw Jason you
0: know
2: yeah uh, you, at least in fr- Friday the 13th you got to know some of the characters right. and that's the the main problem with this one just didn't give a shit yeah so uh then the fourth story is called the sick thing that happened to Emily when she was younger I would say it's sick. Would you describe it as that? Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: I I don't know if I completely understand the title.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, basically the story is, uh, it's a Skype conversation between Emily and her boyfriend. And Emily is clearly a little bit unstable. She thinks that she's seeing ghosts in the house. Yes. And the ghost sightings get more and more freaky as the movie goes on and her boyfriend tries to talk her down. And there's elements of self-surgery in here and there's elements of not-so-self-surgery near the end. It all culminates in something rather disgusting and creepy. Uh, Unfortunately, I had no idea what the hell it was at the end. Right. I had to look up online what actually happened. Did you i didn't
1: i didn't look it up necessarily I, I i guess i didn't find it clearly uh i think the way i interpret it is that uh she was put deliberately into this scenario by her boyfriend and that he had more than one fish on the line this was just one of many girls that he was skyping and doing this terrible well shit yes
2: to. but you know what the ghosts were they were aliens <laughs> did you know that? I did not. <laughs> they were aliens and the creature that was pulled out of her uh stomach at the end of the show by the boyfriend who is actually hiding in the next room was an alien human hybrid and all the dialogue is there if you follow it but it's presented in such a confusing manner that you can't really tell what the what's going on
1: yeah. so i still well it's interesting see because i didn't get all of that out of it. what i still got out of it was really good thrills and chills because there's an interesting thing about this character that main female character is that she's on one hand seems quite fragile but on the other hand is remarkably brave that's right. like way braver than i would be in such a scenario uh, she feels completely safe for some reason When she's talking to this guy over Skype Even though he's not there So she lifts up her computer And is walking from room to room And she's just saying Tell me if there's something there Tell me if there's something there Which is just not how I would handle Such a situation at all mm-hmm. And then to find out that this person That was her rock Who she was depending on Was actually the person that was fucking with her That's sort of where the horror of it came from But yes. um, I didn't understand all of the specifics of it at all uh, well, and, now you know, and now I guess I do. But again, the strange thing that happened to Emily when she was younger—why? Why when
2: she was younger? Oh, who knows? It might be just <laughs> some idea that somebody came up with, or maybe they knew somebody, yeah. and they—they they, the, the, these people, whoever they were, thought. Yeah. This is what happened to them when they were younger. I don't know.
1: But this story, although it does, it again could be argued as you know a little bit exploitive and again a little bit sadistic and uh, masochistic. Uh, sort of brought me back to that first story as far as well, that was a really good unnerving story. Like yeah. I guess even even with me failing to completely comprehend all of the ins and outs of it, it still worked my nerves enough that I liked it.
2: Same here, same here. So our last story is ten thirteen ninety eight yes, which I believe is the only one that actually looks like it was filmed on videotape. The rest of them look like they were filmed on digital right um, and this is a story of uh, a group of assholes who <laughs> were looking for a Halloween party, yes, and they go to the, the wrong house oh do they <laughs> yes they instead of going to the haunted uh, horror house that they fun house, they were thought they were in. It actually turns out to be an actual legitimate place with hands coming out of the walls. and Some
1: sort of ritual going on in the attic.
2: Yes. And there's some pretty great special effects in this. And what I like about it as well is that they actually make us care about the assholes a little bit. They do
1: almost everything right. Once they finally realize they're in jeopardy, Everything they do is pretty much understandable and reasonable to the scenario. I mean, maybe I wouldn't have the balls to go back and try and rescue the woman that they saw in there. But uh I don't think that they behaved stupidly or horror movie stupid like you so often see. Uh, You know, they tried to get the person out of there. Everything that they, they did to try to escape made sense.
2: And that know? was something nice that they did. Like, that's something that I don't think has had previously happened in the movie no one was nice to anyone else
1: (laughs) yeah but is in, that's the horror genre no good deed goes unpunished (laughs) yeah satisfying ending as well yeah and that one had pep and energy and was snappy and you know it wasn't my
2: favorite of them but uh i enjoyed it so overall i thought this was a pretty good entry it had some high points and some low points but the high points overshadowed the low ones quite a bit, plus the fact that it was obviously low budget made me really want to root for the movie. And Absolutely.
1: And I remember talking to you on the phone, and I was checking in to see where you were with the movies, and I was like, uh let's see if you've seen VHS yet. So I said, so does this mean anything to you, Jeremy? I like you.
0: <laughs> I like you.
1: you. You shuddered on the other <laughs> end of the line. Um yeah, I, I think that the flaw of the movie is that it probably has one or two stories more than it should. I think you could probably cut the Ty West story, and you could probably cut, uh, maybe the Friday the 13th one, or the, it was whatever, the 17th. Yeah. The kids. If both of those stories were gone in the entirety, the movie would still probably be 95 minutes long. And, uh, you know, it would be stronger for it. Uh, I think that because of the shaky cam and because of the, you know, real shortage of likable characters at almost two hours the movie will probably wear a lot of people out uh it's almost one of those things that it's good to watch in installments they're like a bunch of short horrifying youtube videos you know uh but you know maybe taking them in one or two at a time is, is a little easier on the senses than trying to suck it all down at once
2: that's a really good point larry i think i think this movie would be more enjoyable if you were to hunt for these things on youtube yeah um or yeah great idea listeners (laughs) do this Uh, um, hopefully we haven't spoiled too many of these things for you
1: they are scary and they do effectively when the good entries anyway feel real to me
0: during the spookiest time of the year
1: there are a few guidelines all ghosts and goblins should follow Always stay on sidewalks, never go to a stranger's house, and never go out (laughs) alone. sorts of things Mm. room free sorry all these traditions
0: wait wait what you're supposed to keep it lit why
1: ain't you tradition putting on costumes
0: i look like i'm five you look great what What do we do now we meet our dates
2: jack-o'-lanterns why are we here to pay our respects to the dead the halloween school bus massacre
0: Started to protect us, but. guys, I don't know. Hiding bodies? Mm. Uh, uh, nowadays, no one really cares. Just wants to
1: lick. Trick or treat? Trick, Trick or, or, treat. or treat. Trick that... or treat, man. Uh, this is written and directed by Michael Doherty. Um, he was wrapped up in the first. Uh, x-men movie with uh, brian singer who is a producer on this and the word on the street is when brian singer decided not to do x-men 3 and instead to do a very mediocre superman movie uh he jumped ship on the studios and they punished him by basically burying this movie trick-or-treat it was released very quietly with very little fanfare or advertising and sort of died a quick and quiet death uh it's become sort of a bit of a cult object. You know, the fans have discovered it as time has gone on, and uh, I think it's a completely decent Halloween night movie. Uh, What do you
2: think of Trick or Treat? This is a very, very special movie. (laughs) It's completely uh, deserving of all of the praise that it gets. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed when I picked it up and saw that there were all written and directed by Mike Doherty because I like the styles of the previous movies where we got different writing styles and different directorial styles. But in this case, it works very well with Trick or Treat. It gives it a
1: uniformity of vision, I guess.
2: (laughs) Plus, it lets the director do certain things that weren't possible in the other movies, as in all the stories are linked and woven together. And we shot jump around out of in
1: time, yeah, it's sort of Pulp Fiction-style presentation
2: of these stories. Yes. <laughs> so, it starts off with a murder, and you, you're not really sure if you like, I wasn't sure if I liked the murder when I saw it, yeah. it seemed a little bit pointless, but... It gets better because we come back to it later on. Yeah, we built
1: our way back to that point, and then it seems sort of to fit in with the rest of the movie more. At first, it's like, okay, here's a derivative kill to start the movie. Ho hum, ho hum. Yes. But um, when you watch it the second time, I think you'll find you've got a big smile on your face. (laughs) Indeed.
2: And so the first story, uh, according to Wikipedia, is titled The Principle, which largely concerns uh, Dylan Baker. Yes, playing the murderous principal Wilkins, trying to cover up his poisoning of one of his students. And the tension is ratcheted up as we realize that he's beginning to contemplate murdering his own son. You get that impression, like he's
1: really getting irritated by his adorable squeaky voice child. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's trying to bury a body in the backyard. His kid's yelling at him from the window. He's dealing with his crotchety old neighbor next door. And uh, you get the feeling like he really takes Halloween seriously. This is like his, his his Christmas, birthday, Thanksgiving all wrapped up into one. It's Halloween for this guy. And uh, instead of celebrating it with friends or getting drunk... Uh, he commits random murders.
2: <laughs> yes, but it, the, this first story also goes to very well to establishing the rules of this universe, which is Respect, Respect Halloween. Halloween and its traditions. We dress up as monsters on Halloween to scare away real spooks, and we appease them by giving them candy. Yeah. And this comes into play later on in the movie, as yeah. we'll find out.
1: Scenes that seem like they might be extemporaneous are not in this movie. <laughs> they yes. just... Uh, they, Their their relevance isn't necessarily obvious
2: immediately. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, I actually w- would like to say, if any listeners out there haven't seen this movie... Watch it first. Watch it first, because what we're going to be talking about here are, is going to spoil all of the stories. Mm-hmm. And this movie is all about its twists. So seriously skip to the next one <laughs> or start watching yeah
1: again the magical thing about podcasts you can listen to them whenever you want if you haven't seen trick-or-treat get your hands to it watch
2: it uh, i would i would not want to spoil this movie for anyone so uh one thing i'll take away from the principal probably the line when his kid shouts out the window charlie brown's an asshole <laughs> love it <laughs> Uh, Next story is The School Bus Massacre Revisited. Yes. Uh, A group of kids are, well, I
1: guess they're slightly too old to trick or treat, but... uh, 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 Well, they're, they're too old to go and get candy, but they're old enough to pull off some mean pranks. And they're collecting pumpkins, and they're inviting this weird girl who's dressed up like a witch and who's presumably somewhere on the autism spectrum <laughs> uh, who's a little bit off and they ex- they're they going to scare her on Halloween. Uh, the leader of the the group who which I thought was a brilliant choice is dressed as an angel and, and uh, is just wonderfully characterized by this young actress as that really pretty spoiled girl who was just so awful. <laughs> like Indeed. and she could she can charm anyone with a smile and her her wet little eyes and convince, you know, anyone to do anything for her. But she's just bad.
2: <laughs> what makes this particular story a joy is that they got Such great kids. All of the actors did a great job. Yeah, Yeah, the you compare and contrast the kids from Kick the Can. Yeah, just world of difference from the woodenness that Spielberg had versus the vibrancy of the performances in Mm -hmm. School Bus Massacre.
1: And between the types of all those kids. I think everybody will find one kid that they'll identify with out of that group. Yes. You know, there's that softer kid who's sort of being dragged, kicking and screaming into it. You kind of feel the worst for because you just know he wasn't a bad kid. It was just the circumstances kind of got carried away on him. And then there was the other boy who was just crushing on this this leader of the group and uh, basically mindlessly doing anything she says until it starts getting out of hand.
2: Yes, and it does. get, get out of hand but then bad things actually happen when the real ghosts come to get them and that is legitimately scary Mm -hmm. and once again very realistic performances are dragged out of these kids yeah yeah fantastic story yeah um
1: the great thing that i like and it's it's again we're, we're talking spoilers but she sets up the story of the school bus that got sank into the reservoir um <clears throat> rock quarry a rock quarry pardon me and uh uh you know you, you during the the context of that story we believe she's trying to scare this little girl um the story that she's telling is true it's not just a halloween story as we find out it, it, not just in this segment but it has ties to things that we see subsequently um and i, I thought that was very clever uh to you know, double down on that bus story.
2: <laughs> yes, the school bus is actually there. Yeah, yeah. Three young ladies go out to Halloween partying, and with the object of letting Anna Paquin's character have a good first time. Yes, and we assume that this means that we she's going to have her virginity taken from her this evening. Yes. But as we discover. They are all three of them werewolves, and it's actually her first human kill that yeah. they're introducing her to. Another
1: great juxtaposition too. They're all play, They're all dressed as fairy tale characters. Yes. Uh, so they all again look very beautiful and very pretty and very you know sweet, and uh, they are not beautiful or pretty or sweet and in all. fact
2: in fact anna paquin is dressed as red riding hood which makes it very ironic that she's a wolf <laughs> and principal wilkins shows up and <laughs> yeah he's on the on the menu for that night too. yes so uh, this was an okay story I, what i really liked about it was of course the twist at the end mm-hmm. discovering that all three of them are werewolves and then once they transform that's just fantastic with the flesh zippers yeah uh, mm-hmm. where they throw off their human skins uh, and, and- yeah, I, I
1: love how you know they just completely embraced it. You know, they did a great transformation sequence. The the werewolves were creepy and sexy, and you know they they, yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, um, I think it was probably the least complicated story that he told here, as far as you know. I I didn't I was not surprised by the twist in that story, whereas the other stories had, I think the twist kind of got me a little bit i
2: was quite surprised because we were first of all we had no idea who this vampire character was that was walking around biting people Mm -hmm. and i was convinced that he was going to do something terrible to anna paquin and then when it turns out to be Principal Wilkins, and she eats him.
1: It's not subtle, though, at all, with, with the whole thing. is uh, Her mom says, always referred to her as the runt of the little litter, and uh, meeting at, uh, was it Sheep's Grove that they were sending the guys to meet them, and the Red Riding Hood thing. And I, you get to the point where you're looking for the twist, or at least I do sometimes. I can't help it.
0: <laughs> I,
1: I missed all of those references when I saw it. Yeah, that yeah. was the one that I caught. Uh, 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 like... I just knew that I wasn't afraid for Anna Paquin's character for whatever reason even I mean even if I didn't maybe didn't know necessarily you know how it was going to play out or that the principal was going to be involved in that story as well uh, I was pretty sure that yeah she was going to wolf out at some point
2: <laughs> well i i am sorry that you had this this delightful story spoiled by your own <laughs> <laughs> reaching for what the plot is going to be
1: just take the ride parsons just take the <laughs> ride
2: <laughs> so story number four is called sam yes and stars brian cox as he ba- does battle with the evil spirit of halloween sam or sam hayne <laughs>
1: Brian Cox has come up a few times in the podcast already. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Uh, I, I think like, uh, he's, uh, he's got a lot of range and yet he's always somehow Brian Cox at the same time. Whenever you see him, um, there's something really great about his voice in this <laughs> movie. Uh, it sounds almost like he had a, a chest cold or, or like a, a wheeze going. And, uh, it, we, we find out why he's playing it that way later on. Uh, because of, I guess we'll just go right to it. We find out he was actually the bus driver that drove the bus into the rock quarry later <laughs> on. And when they, in the story she told, we saw the driver hitting the shore. And as he got to the shore, he was making this terrible wheezing sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how it threaded back to the Brian Cox character, because he was just. He seemed like he was some. He he looks like an old fellow, but he seemed like he was playing it like an even older dude in a lot of ways.
2: Yes, he seems to live a very unhealthy life. And yeah, once again, Brian Cox, great performance, really disappears into the role. You you'd, you'd never guess that he's a Scottish gentleman the yeah. way that he roars at people in this and wheezes and yeah.
1: And uh, the I think in a lot of ways, this story is maybe. I mean, they're all kind of ridiculous, but this is like a pretty out there chapter in the movie, and uh, you really need an actor who's going to commit and sell and not wink.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, Brian Cox was there for a hundred percent. The coolest part of this is when when Mr. Krieg, that's his character's name, uh, blows Sam's head open with a with shotgun. a shotgun, and there's a all that stringy pumpkin goop inside. Yes. Love that.
1: Uh, Sam is, I
2: guess, this
1: weird Halloween figure. We haven't really mentioned him. Uh, yes. We see him briefly at the beginning. He commits that first murder. But he looks like a little kid in a particularly filthy ghost Halloween costume.
2: Or a scarecrow or something.
1: Yeah. Um, but if you disrespect the rules of Halloween, Sam's going to give you some shit. Like, uh, the girl at the beginning was taking down the decorations before Halloween was over. It's yes. a big no-no and uh brian cox was scaring kids away from his house and not giving out canning
2: doesn't believe in halloween and he learns that lesson very hard no, we don't
1: play that yep. <laughs> no, we don't play that sam's gonna come pay you a visit mm-hmm. um and basically what we see is this poor old guy uh being sieged by this uh supernatural unkillable uh sadistic creature which doesn't seem intent on killing him just hurting him repeatedly <laughs> <laughs>
2: And there's a great, great scare in that as well when we first see Sam as he climbs up onto the bed. Yes. I love that. So, and then it all ties in so nicely at the end where we discover that that the very first scene happens right after the last scene of... Sam of leaves the final, that
1: house mm-hmm. and walks across the street to see this woman taking down her Halloween door decorations. Mm-hmm. Cool. All of this that we have just talked about, I should add is in like a lean eighty what eighty two minutes it's amazing how much story he packed into eighty two minutes uh and uh like they all work, even like i complained if if it really it wasn't really a complaint i I kind of felt like I knew where the Anna Paquin thing was going i still it didn't really hurt the enjoyment of it at all. I mean, I at least got the twist of the the principal being involved, but, uh, this movie's got everything and the kitchen sink, you know, you got, you got your werewolves, you got that weird little pumpkin kid, (laughs) you got, you know, zombies, zombies, serial killers, (laughs) bullying kids. Um, all of the stories pay off. They have sort of, you know, they have their own little twists and wrinkles to them. I mean, it's a really fantastic anthology film and it's going to rank high for me.
2: I can't think of anything bad to say about it. Coming soon.
0: <laughs> Jolting Tales of Horror. Creep show. From the author of Carrie, the Shining and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and the dead you'll scream at ghastly ghouls cringe at weird kids and shiver at the doings of evil doctors this is going to be extremely painful mr i like
1: uh stephen king and uh I like some of George A. Romero's work quite a bit, specifically if there's zombies involved. I, I'm I'm interested in Romero. Yeah. Um, but this is an interesting uh, anthology, sort of a tribute to the old uh, EC comics from back of the day before the Comics Code Authority ruined them. Yes. Exactly, took all the teeth out of them. Um, so the stories that you're going to encounter here are very very simple, you know. Uh, and there's you know people wearing white hats and people wearing black hats, and in a way that really feeds to uh, Stephen King's talents because I do find that he does sort of paint in black and white, especially with his characters. They're either super good or they're super evil. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, when you're painting in these cartoonish comic book broad strokes, uh, it it works. I've said, like, I I like Stephen King, but having him as your, your screenplay author is not usually... Necessarily a good thing, and I think it works well enough in, in in Creepshow here.
2: As far as I know, these are all original Stephen King stories, aren't they? Like they uh, he didn't actually go back to any of the old. EC I believe
1: comics. most of these are either adapted from some of his short stories or yeah, just written in the style of those EC comics. I've read a lot of his short fiction, and I don't remember running into most of these stories. Uh, you know, in other any other format, when you move on to *Creepshow* too, they're direct adaptations of his short fictions. I think this is his sort of version of an ec comic for film
2: now there's some great ideas in this movie and one of them i feel is the lighting effects particularly mm-hmm. during the dramatic scenes are great the way that they'll do these color stains yeah, yeah. color stains and splashes when somebody sees something horrifying yeah that, that, that mimic the old comics but what i am wondering about and maybe you can answer this for me why do you think romero thought it was important to have all the performances be hammy you know, is there something about the EC comics that that suggested cheesy um, dialogue? Well, uh, like I said, the, the
1: stories are very simplistic, and uh, you know, it's basically set up to the payoff of the kill or the scare or the boo. I think that he wanted to make this a funny scary movie, and I think in the end, it's much more scary than funny. And the funny wasn't in the script as much as it was in the presentation.
2: Well, in any case, I think that a lot of the scary gets detracted from in the performances. Right. Uh, lots of scenes could have been way more frightening if we cared about the characters, for instance. And giving legitimate performances is one of that, but one of those things, so. Let's duck in, shall we? Yes, our first story is Father's Day. Yes. Not too much to say about this. A shambling zombie comes to life and kills a bunch of people. Yes. The end. Yeah, pretty much.
1: Uh, there's a, a, a early performance from Ed Harris. Uh, we get to see him doing some funky disco dancing. And, uh, you know, the I want my cake, my Father's Day cake, was a, uh, a line that was repeated a lot around my house
0: when I was a kid.
2: <laughs> More on that later. <laughs> yes. Um, so the next one is The Lonesome Lonesome Death of Jordy Beryl.
1: Yes, and this one actually stars Stephen King as a complete yokel. (laughs) Like, God don't make no trash, piece of what trash,
2: you know? (laughs) A meteor falls on his farm, and he immediately tries to think of ways that he can... Profit from this. (laughs) Yes, but uh, unfortunately some of the meteor shit falls out and starts growing weird plant life all over his farm. Now, Stephen King has admitted at this time, that, uh,
1: subsequently, that he's quite embarrassed by his performance in Creepshow, but that his direction, as told by his dear friend Romero, was that he couldn't play it too big, that this would be fun and funny, and that uh, he was right for the part. And Stephen King had a head full of alcohol and cocaine and... Uh, I, I, I think that it's the most clearly funny of all of the stories as far as like, it's deliberately goofy and funny. Um and the visions that we are treated to, sort of uh, the
2: Jody Verrill vision that we get. <laughs> I love how whenever he imagines some an authority figure or someone that's smarter than him, he imagines his dad. His dad dressed as
1: <laughs> these different people, yeah, and the either a cop or a doctor. Or <laughs> the
2: Department of Meteors at the university is pretty great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: and just you know his his strategies of dealing with this, you know, his green mossy plants are growing everywhere that he has touched or that the meteor has touched and his solution is to drink a bottle of vodka and watch wrestling and hope that the problem goes
2: away You know. Mm-hmm. and then later he he tries to wash it off with water great, yes great plan there yeah,
1: yeah. And even the vision of his dad waving a finger saying, you know, this is a stupid idea will not stop him from (laughs) pressing forward. Um, you know, a lot of people would just like have a hard time wading through this move, this, this uh, story, I imagine, but I kind of get a kick out of it. I mean, I do too. Stephen King is over the top and I don't think he's an actor necessarily, but, uh, I think he works well enough for the segment that they were doing here and, uh, it still somehow feels of the world of the rest of the movie. Like I say, I think this is the most overtly funny of the stories, but uh, it's
2: definitely it definitely belongs. Yeah. My only criticism would, would, of course, be Stephen King's performance. I think it did just go a little bit too far over the edge for me, but also the main problem would be that there's no plot to it. No. The, the plot goes, something bad happened, then it got even worse. Yeah. End of story. So... It
1: keeps with the theme of, like, grand
2: simplicity. Yes. Yeah. It's got some nice laughs, though, and so I can't fault it completely. Good times. Next, we have something to tide you over. Yes. Uh, Sam Malone,
1: Ted Danson. Uh, in Pre-Cheers, uh, Ted Danson. And uh, a pre-Naked Gun, <laughs> Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> where we were still allowed to take him a little bit seriously. Um, this is sort of a standard uh, revenge type of story, uh, revenge from beyond the grave. Uh, a, a wealthy sociopath finds out that his wife has been cheating on him, and since he's very, as, as to his own admission, very insane when it comes to things that belong to him, uh, he feels it necessary to dispatch both his wife and her lover. But he does it in a very, very cruel, torturous uh, way. Uh, by leading them out to the uh, beach, his private beach, burying them neck deep deep in the sand, hooking up a video so that they could see their lover in a similar situation further down the beach, being drowned as the tide comes in,
2: and, and watching the
1: whole thing, watching from the his whole own thing compound in his compound, like
2: a very, very
1: evil Stephen King villain that we have here, and uh yeah, in true nature of the uh, creep show simplicity the ghosts or zombies return from their watery grave to get their revenge
2: let's call them revenants that's okay. a much revenants. cooler turn yeah. very good uh this one was interesting because of leslie nielsen I yes thought. he this was a the first you know dramatic role i've ever seen him in and uh it was i just thought it was refreshing
1: yeah uh it's uh, he does play it very seriously and his character is like he is a crazy crazy dude and i liked it it was sort of refreshing to me that he knew it (laughs) he knew it he knew that this was completely crazy and that there were certain things that he was not right about but
2: he'd somehow made his peace with it (laughs) that this was who he was (laughs) yes and the fact that i think he gives the most dialed back performance Mm -hmm. in the movie is also important as well And establishing
1: him as a villain. (laughs) There is an interesting bit of continuity here. And I don't know if we want to just blame uh, Leslie Nielsen or Romero. But uh, in the climactic sequences, when he starts hearing noises in his house, uh, he's in the shower. And uh, at no point is his hair even a little bit wet at
0: any
1: any point in in the shower. I also really love the uh, scene when he finally does see the creatures and they do the zoom in with the light. And where any other person, I think, would be screaming, he's laughing hysterically. Yeah, yeah. I love that shot so much. That like, <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you react when you actually turn that corner and see those vengeful ghosts coming to get you? Like, you're screwed. There's absolutely nothing he could have done to save himself, I believe.
0: <laughs> like,
1: mm, maniacal laughter. And, uh Yeah. He empties his bullets into them, he tries to lock himself in another room, he turns around and somehow they've just appeared before him, and he starts to laugh, and I just loved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good stuff.
2: Our next story is very special to you. As oh, I remember <laughs> yes. Tell us about what your dad used to do to you. <laughs> Uh, This is another one of the many
1: 80s horror movies that I saw way too young. And of all the horrible stories and, uh, you know, awful violence that uh, is in this Creepshow movie, it was this story, The Crate, that terrified me. And it concerns a janitor finding a mysterious crate under the stairs at at this university, and him unfortunately inviting his professor friend to help him open it to see what's inside. We, in my garage, in Beaumont, Alberta, where I grew up, had a crate that did not look at all dissimilar to this crate in the movie. And my father, knowing I was terrified of this, loved to send me out to the garage to get something. He would probably, even if he didn't need it, you he, uh, know, go get me a length of those old Christmas lights, you know, they're, they're in the garage, right by the crate, he would say. Son of a bitch.
0: <laughs> Uh, Tom
1: Savini, it should be mentioned, uh, is responsible for the makeup and special effects in Creepshow, and uh, for the most part, uh, it's very over the top in the style of EC Comics, so the violence is you know, it, it's it's nasty and, and, and somewhat realistically rendered, but uh, the context is so ridiculous as to sort of detract from the horror a little bit Not so in this crate installment uh, there's a scene where a student gets mauled by this creature in the crate, which is just embedded in my <laughs> subconscious because I saw it too young. Uh, the the effects stand up today. A lot of stuff about this movie doesn't. A lot of the fashions, the, the synthy scores, like the color scheme, very 80s. But the special effects that Tom Savini did with those creature kills in this movie still look horrible and awesome at the same time.
2: The monster in the crate still looks scary, too, with those yellow eyes peering out. And uh, there are some great scenes of suspense where someone is inching towards the crate, and Uh you know that it's in there. (laughs) They they want to go there for some reason. You're like, turn back, this is not a good idea, or what the heck are you doing just so... Uh, Hal Hallbrook uh,
1: plays this uh, really put upon fellow whose wife, played by Adrian Barbeau, just is this raging alcoholic bitch.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: I mean, he lives in this miserable marriage, and I'm sure he has a part to play in why he's so unhappy, but uh, he believes that his wife, Billy, would be better served underground and that his life would be better and when uh, his best friend comes hysterical to his door explaining that there's a monster that he opened a crate freed from a crate that has killed the janitor he does not immediately panic instead he sees this As an opportunity to deal with his wife. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, In in a way, that makes the crate the most complex story of the entire movie. In that they added the additional wrinkle of him, you know, murdering his wife via this crate monster. Um, It's also the only story that's not wrapped up neatly. Uh, In the end, I think, you know, uh, they show this. He thinks that he's gotten rid of the crate by throwing it down into a... Another rock quarry. Another rock quarry, here we go. Um, but we see you know that it has escaped. And at the uh, at the end of that story, the Great Monster was out there and free. And uh young single digit age category Larry was not okay with that and still isn't. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I love I love, I love that segment. I mean, um I do enjoy Creepshow overall and will watch it front to back, but uh, it's one of those things where I'm having a conversation with somebody and, oh, you haven't seen that? I will put in the disc and show them the Crate monster because it's nuts. It's nuts. It's also noticeably the longest story, too,
2: I think, of of, of the collection. Um, I myself was uh, introduced to... Creep show via the crate by you yeah. <laughs> fairly early in our relationship as friends. You're welcome. <laughs> yes, thank you. So we have a last story here called "They're Creeping Up on You." Basically, uh, there's a creepy millionaire uh, sealed in a room who's afraid of germs and bugs, and then it's he's also racist. He, oops, he's, yeah. Yes, we need because we needed that, and we have to not like this guy. <laughs> yeah, and then. He, he is uh, sees more and more bugs and then there's a bug explosion. the end. <laughs> That's basically the plot Yeah,
1: I mean one of the most interesting things maybe the most interesting thing about that this segment is how disgusting it Apparently was to be on set for this uh, They used real cockroaches this this is no CG anywhere in, 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 in this movie um, And apparently it stank Like it was just like a repellent environment to be for days and days and days and days. And uh, apparently they'd rented all these different camera equipment and uh, cranes or whatnot to make the production. (laughs) And uh, maybe somebody was doing a cockroach count. Maybe they weren't. But in the documentary I saw on Romero, there was people in the production saying that they were pretty sure some equipment was getting returned infested with these cockroaches
2: (laughs) well i was reading on wikipedia actually someone was doing a count because the cockroaches came from a foreign country yeah they had
1: to fly them in yes
2: and so they had to keep track of them for some reason so between every scene they had to count the number of cockroaches so that they could be returned
0: yeah
1: Ugh. uh it's probably the one of the grossest things in the movie when all the bugs ab- emerge from the body of this old curmudgeon but uh at that point having already seen the crate uh if uh, i was
0: numb <laughs>
1: by
2: this point yeah. it might have actually been a story too many i think it would have been better if the crate was at the end honestly because it it's the high like, mm-hmm. yeah well, the one thing about this is that it really goes to highlight the shitty 80s synthesizer because <laughs> for the first time we hear real music yeah. in the form of the old-timey tunes that the old man is playing, and they really serve to just put what it, what we've been hearing to shame yeah. at this point. And you're, oh, wow, I've been listening to shit this whole time. Yeah. So... Yeah, It doesn't necessarily fit, like,
1: I can deal with an 80s synth soundtrack because what choice do you have? But it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily seem to fit with the old-timey EC comic book thing either. In a way, I think you wanted, like, an orchestral score. Maybe they just couldn't afford it.
2: Well, that's probably the case. In, in any case, you, you really get the idea that, that it's been dated by the music, which is a shame because many, many 80s movies have been ruined as uh, <laughs> like that for
1: me. I wouldn't say that it's ruined. I think that, like, if you can put up with some 80s-ness to your movies, you're not going to waste your time watching Creepshow. Fair enough. I like it. Uh, and uh, the stories, for the most part, are fairly quick and uncomplicated. You know, uh, again, uh, it's worth a look. It's definitely worth a look.
2: For me, there were there were enough stories in here that didn't have a real three-act plot to them that, that it was they they disappointed me plus the hammy acting i was not behind 100 percent because i couldn't felt deliberate it. though i didn't feel like they were weak performances i felt like they were doing what was asked of for me. sure it was deliberate yeah. but i don't know why yeah i do not know why they thought it was necessary to do that but still some great ideas and some great stories and if for nothing
1: else man check out the creep the, the crate pardon me uh also interesting to note uh the movie his book ended with a little kid reading a a comic book well i guess having his comic books destroyed by his mean old dad and that boy is uh played by joe hill uh or joe king at the time stephen king's son who's grown up to be a, a horror author in his own right so it's kind of an interesting interesting little uh time capsule piece stephen king your
0: favorite novelist and master of modern horror has written his first motion picture screenplay. It combines all the elements of his creative imagination. Lovable pets. Classic cars. Quiet evenings. Favorite films. Kill the son of a... <laughs> Good idea. Adorable kids. Help me. It's, after me. it's after me! And of course... A monster or two. Experience a series of electrifying adventures. A scene through Stephen King's Cat's Eyes.
1: Okay, we're going to stay in Stephen King country for this last review, which is uh, Cat's Eye. And I know what you were probably thinking when you watch this movie. Where can I get the soundtrack? right? (laughs) I'm not wrong. You were very excited by the music in this film, I'm guessing.
2: Actually, you know, the '80sness was not that distracting Didn't in this get movie. It. No. <laughs> uh, it, it,
1: this one felt even even more so than uh, Creepshow to me. This one really felt period to me. This really felt '80s for some
2: reason. <laughs> well, maybe that's why it, it worked for me because it was clearly set in the '80s. That it would make, would make sense that an '80s soundtrack.
1: Um, and it was this was Stephen King's heyday, um, and uh, the opening sequence in which we see uh, our cat getting in and out of trouble is this cat that's going to sort of tenuously tie these three stories together um, is nearly run over by Christine uh, from the novel Christine and is being chased clearly by Cujo from the novel Cujo. And there's all these little seated uh, huh, Stephen King, we like Stephen King, uh, which seems a little bit obnoxious. And why are you taking us out of the movie in this way? But it's also very fitting because Stephen King does that shit all of the time in his books. He'll reuse characters from different stories or, uh, you know, he will he will reference events from other books. And so, you know, I, and because it was the sort of title sequence, I kind of let that go. Um, but once the movie sort of settles in, uh, we start seeing these three adaptations of Stephen King's stories. The first of which, called uh, Quitters, Inc., correct starring uh james woods and alan king uh jeremy what did you think of cat's eye and uh, well starting with
2: Clitter, Inc. okay well Zinc is about james woods i can't remember his character's name but in any case he is a smoker who is referred to an anti-smoking clinic which is staffed by psychos <laughs> who stalk him and tell him that if he takes another smoke they're going to electrocute his wife for a little bit. Yeah. And from there they're going to go to increasingly cruel punishments if uh, escalation. Inflicted on, yes. yes. inflicted on him and his family if he continues to smoke. Yeah. I don't know if it's made
1: clear in the
2: movie but in the actual story it's it's clearly run by the mafia.
1: The it's a, it's an organization some uh, uh, high-level mafioso guy was dying of cancer and was taking it personally so his sort of legacy is this quitter's ink and it's yeah it's it's run by hard cases from the mafia
2: well that makes sense it indeed was not made clear in the movie who these guys <laughs> were they had italian accents and they looked like mobsters but yeah. as far as i knew they were just weirdos yeah well, this is a pretty good story. Uh, had a satisfying ending, with the, particularly with the twist, I mm-hmm. thought. A little reveal there. Yeah.
1: Uh, it's interesting for a few reasons. I mean, uh, it, James Woods is in the central performance, but it's, uh, it's using his manic energy to a sort of a different length and used to seeing you're sort of used to seeing him playing an alpha male in control sort of calling the shots and he's rocked back on his heels and fairly desperate for most of this story which is not typical ground for for james woods i liked seeing that i also liked seeing how different the world is i, I grew up this is me mid-80s i was you know in the height of my childhood people smoked everywhere and everybody smoked yes you see this in old news I remember we were talking about the uh, exorcist uh, with Terry the other day and uh um how the doctor when they were, were were talking to regan was was smoking in the office with her you just wouldn't see that in a movie nowadays it's interesting that uh to see the change in the zeitgeist i guess
2: well even even the the bars that we grew up with as uh, started attending we were yeah. dens of smoking and it's just everything has changed now yeah
1: it's it's almost like this, this story almost wouldn't work today. It had to be said in the 80s for this to work.
2: Yeah,
1: it's an interesting <laughs> because the, point. The, the, uh, as far as the visual temptation being everywhere, everywhere he looks there's people lighting up and it's sort of driving him crazy. And I kind of dug that.
2: Well, I have an uncle who quit smoking entirely. And he, to this day, you know, it's been decades since he's had a smoke. But to this day when he sees somebody lighting up, he's just got that little addict voice that says boy that would be nice to have a smoke yeah
1: um so moving on to the second story and i'm thinking this might be why they decided to downplay the mob angle in the first story is because we kind of have another story about a a criminal uh mastermind uh trying to get some vengeance
2: it's called the ledge and it's essentially the same story as something to tide you over isn't it rich psycho finds out his wife is fooling around and decides to kill both parties kill and torment both people yeah and uh,
1: i think that this character has a little less color or at least the performance did uh, than leslie nielsen's character in creep show but i like the idea of the the ledge and that he was in his mind this was a rigged game you got the idea that he'd done this a few times he had a few booby traps set and uh His fire hose torments, and Mm -hmm. the the whole thing, it's not just the the stress of uh, Robert Hayes trying to walk around the ledge of this building, it's the torment that he goes through at the hands of this uh, gangster, and of one particularly irritating pigeon.
2: Yes, the pigeon. (laughs) (laughs) Pecking at his toes as he tries to walk along the edge. Another interesting uh, connection with Creepshow
1: here is the juxtaposition, uh, Robert Hayes is probably most famously known as the lead character in the Airplane franchise. Um hmm. so, uh. Leslie him, Nielsen? Yeah, seeing yeah. him play a straight role quite well in, in, in this movie was sort of echoes of Leslie Nielsen's work in, in Creepshow. <laughs> was this movie, it was after, uh. This would be after Airplane, but before Naked Gun, or at least before the Naked
2: Gun movies. It was after the TV uh, show. I think. The gangster guy played Baron Harkonnen. Right? <laughs> I believe so. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. well, overall, a pretty satisfying story. Once again, not too much bad to say about it.
1: Yeah. Uh Interesting. Both of the first stories again having to do with the mobs and uh, murder and revenge, or, 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 or you know, but not supernatural element. Uh, two of them uh
2: until story number three
1: until story number three you almost think like they were doing sort of stephen king straight stories until we get to this third story and the other thing about the third story is that as far as i know it's not adapted necessarily from one of his stories i believe he just this was just written for the screen that is correct yeah um and uh drew barrymore who was a a big star at the time because of e.t and who had, uh, before this, done uh, Firestarter, which was an adaptation of another Stephen King book. Uh, they, they try to get her into the other stories here and there. The cat's sort of questing to find her. Yes. But in a way, the film's star, the box office draw to Cat's Eye,
2: was Drew Barrymore. <laughs> and she does a good performance in the third story, which is General. The General. No, just General. Just General, yes. Uh, the cat finds her. She
1: wants to keep the cat. She names it General. Um, And then we find out why the cat has been drawn to her.
2: A hideous, tiny troll is hiding in her wall and menacing her, stealing her breath during the night. And the cat is her nocturnal guardian. Absolutely. Um,
1: It it seems like the the cat was almost built to do battle with a creature like
2: this. (laughs) This is a pretty neat creature, too. It's wearing... A medieval jester outfit. Yeah. And it's got a tiny little curved blade as well.
1: Yeah, he looks almost like he could have been like a particularly nasty creature that escaped from the world of Labyrinth. There's something yeah. puppety about him. There's something like sort of giddy and mischievous,
2: you know? But at the same time... Sinister. Yes. Uh, the I like the fact that since this was film in, filmed in the 80s and this was, cr- creature was supposed to be... A tiny creature. They obviously had to make a set that was ten times as big as Mm -hmm. real life and have this regular sized guy wandering around in it. And that was pretty fun. It appeals to the strength of Stephen King's stories, like some of them are sort of grounded
1: in reality, and some of them are just absolutely crazy. Shit happens just because it happens. Uh, you know, we have to accept this little troll on the wall because this is the world that we're in. But I also thought it was kind of clever that he stole the breath from the little girl as she slept. Because this thing, this sort of idea of breath stealing, is actually associated with cats, is the superstition about cats that given true. the chance they would smother older people or children in their sleep. So then you're going to get to, you start building your own mythology out of this. Well, it's actually these little trolls that do that. The cats were trying to protect them,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: people ass- assumed that it was the cat that did this, right? Uh, as bizarre and weird as it is, it's it's kind of smart to... <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I liked it, but it did seem like the odd story out. Uh, and uh, there's only three stories to choose from in this one. Uh, this one, they obviously was the one they spent the money on, as far as the special effects and the rendering of the creature and the scale of it. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: <laughs> Once again, a good story. I guess I have uh, problems with the very end, where the troll somehow lands on the record player, and the cat knows to turn up the speed and sends it <laughs> flying across the room. That's a little bit. Yeah, but other than that, uh, a pretty good story yeah. and a neat idea for a monster as well. Um, and yeah, it seemed a little bit strange that it, <laughs> that there wasn't anything supernatural before this. But on the other hand, you gotta end your show with a bang.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, the through line, I guess the connection to these three stories was just really Stephen King and like the very thinly thing with the cat being involved
2: in three stories. This was a great cat, by the way. I don't know <laughs> if they used multiple cats. They must have. They almost always do. But this cat or collection of cats, whatever it was, had a real charisma to it. <laughs> I have to say, um, a certain star quality. Yeah. I'm a cat man. <laughs> so overall uh my opinion of cat's eye was there's just a very solid anthology movie here you can't really point to one of these stories and say that was weak can i ask you something what did it scare you Mm, uh, the troll kind of got to me a little bit uh that would be
1: one if, if it's a complaint i mean i do like the movie i think it's good uh it's in the horror section, and I don't know. I don't. I, I wasn't particularly scared by it. Um, maybe if I, you know, saw it when I was younger, I would have been. But uh, I thought they were interesting stories with nice little twists, and uh, I think that they they suited the length well. I think any of those stories stretched to feature length probably wouldn't hold together but in this little package they worked fine but uh i'd say if you if you're looking for if you're a stephen king fan absolutely if you want you know a good decent anthology watch that's good if you want to be scared i wouldn't maybe escort you over to, like, the VHS or, or you know, uh, one of the other ones, a uh, trick-or-treat or something like
2: that. Well, perhaps a, a viewer who is not as jaded as us <laughs> perhaps. would find some of these <laughs> sk- 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 stories a little bit more frightening. Fair enough. We need to, we need to see, uh, you know, people's junk getting ripped off in order to be scared. <laughs> That's how sad and pathetic we are. <laughs> Number six on the list is Creepshow. Uh, Yes, it had the crate in it, but unfortunately it had some crappy stories and some shitty acting in it, intentional though it was. Hmm. Number five is Twilight Zone the movie. Uh, My main problem with that, of course, was Kick the Can and the Go Nowhere Vic Morrow story, but there was also the fact that all of the stories had been spoiled for me. Number four is VHS. Um, Very strong uh, beginning, but once again weighted down by some real clunkers. Number three is Cat's Eye, which just seemed to be strong to me. Yes, maybe not that scary, but there wasn't anything especially bad I could say about any of those stories. Right. Um, Two is The Signal. I admired the uh, intelligence of the movie and how it got me thinking afterwards quite a bit. And then... uh, trick-or-treat is at number one
0: yeah.
2: flawless victory <laughs> flawless victory i actually
1: put cat's eye at number six and uh i i like it fine i just somebody had to fit that bottom slot and that was it i just i i was the least scary and the least thrilling it was sort of the most middle of the day kind of tv movie almost it was it was completely adequate uh it was good uh, the, the the slightest meal of the group i found Uh, number five I put the Twilight Zone Um, it's because you got two weak stories and then two really really strong stories and I think the strong stories make it worth waiting through the week. And uh, if you don't want to watch the first two stories, that's fine. You're not going to lose any plot. (laughs)
2: That's a very good point, folks. If you don't like any of these stories, just fast forward. Number four is
1: where I put The Signal. Um, And I really do like The Signal, and I think that they accomplished a lot with a very modest budget. Uh, I think it was the most loosely an anthology film of them all. And as much as I like the middle funny segment, uh, the just wasn't sure how to process it. So it, it, it ranked a little lower as a result of that. Uh, Creepshow made it all the way to number three for me. Uh, again, I have a personal <laughs> investment of, uh, the crate monster really, really messing with me from a young age. So, uh, uh, that one really speaks to me and i'm also a big stephen king fan so um uh, number two actually i went with vhs um mainly because the the concept was very solid and i think that uh it's probably scared me the most of all of these movies like that the, the those two stories in particular the the skype conversation and the guys uh, with the spy glasses were the two real high water marks but uh I just like, think overall, through concept and uh, execution, very surprising. Um, yeah, it's worth your time. And number one, absolutely, was Trick or Treat. Absolutely. Like, yeah. uh, and, and like, it was very easy to me, clear to me, that Trick or Treat was going to be number one. Sorting out the rest of the list, actually, I found kind of tricky like i say the found footage genre for me tends to work between best between like 80 and 90 minutes the longer you sort of pull that the harder it is to to maintain the reality right so i uh, don't but just like i said the level of the scares that i got out of the stories that worked were scarier than probably any other stories that i encountered so. fair enough so let's move on to our favorite story uh, number six i put the uh something to tide you over from Mm -hmm. Creepshow. Uh, i don't know if it would have the same effect again if i hadn't seen it when i was just a little kid but i really like the the effects like the bullet hits on those uh water creatures and all of the seaweed and the way like they were so saturated that the all that did was basically make them splash and leak more fluid i don't know Revenants. Revenants, yeah. I I really like that. Okay, Uh, So then number five uh, from the Twilight Zone, the uh, gifted child. What was the name of that segment? It's a good life. It's a good life. Um, Two things of that that stand out for me is the removal of the mouth of the one character and that scene where he brings the cartoons out of the television to entertain everyone and it's really entertaining for the little kid and really horrifying for everybody else. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, then I put uh, the uh, wrong house... Oh, no, pardon me, the, the webcam story from VHS. The sick thing that happened to Emily when she was younger. Yeah. Uh, sorry, so that would be the... <laughs> number four number four uh yeah again I really like the performance by that actress in that in that because she would seem to be like this naive victim of this guy but she had some hard bark on her and uh I think under weaker hands that story might not have worked as well and yeah the twist of finding out that her rock was actually the guy causing it was was brutal (laughs) (laughs) Then number three uh, would be Terror at 20,000 Feet. John Lithgow, I mean, I think enough said (laughs) that Gremlin is still a great special effects, and that performance is solid. If if you watch nothing else in the Twilight Zone set, you should watch that one. Uh, Number two is I Like You. (laughs) (laughs) The succubus, whatever creature that gargoyle-like woman was in the first segment of VHS. And of course, number one, the crate, the crate monster, <laughs> I, I, I'm like, maybe, maybe that VHS segment should genuinely be a number one, but the crate monster has caused me to lo- lose the most sleep <laughs> 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 out of, uh, out of any, probably any horror movies. So it had
2: to be number one for me. Those are very good selections and I can't fault you with, with any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, my number six is Sam from Trick or Treat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian Cox versus a horrible pumpkin-headed kid. Where can you go wrong? <laughs> number five, same as you, is It's a Good Life with the evil Anthony. Right. Great concept, funny performances, and that cartoon monster is great. <laughs> number four is actually transmission number two oh. from The Signal. The I funnier re- one. Huh? Yeah, I really dug the... Uh, the transition from funny to disgust that happened, and the way that it twisted my insides like that. Three is the school bus massacre revisited from Trick or Treat. Oh, wow. okay. uh, really like those kids' performances, and there's some really scary zombies. Those those kids that went in the school bus were scary before they became. Zombies. <laughs> yeah, those did like the, some of those horrifying costumes. They all were, wearing. <laughs> and there's silence as well. Yeah, that. they're very okay. stoic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, number two is The Crate from Creepshow for me, uh, for obvious reasons. And then number one is Amateur Night from I like VHS. You. I <laughs> like Thank you. you. Wow. So, so uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've actually ranked and reviewed twice during this episode. Yes, you have. So, uh, does that mean I'm actually beating jared Berry now <laughs> yes yes
1: i think that this uh, gives you a slight edge on jared <laughs> oh,
2: excellent hey jared barry fuck you
1: <laughs> i can think of no better way to end the podcast thank you so much jeremy is there anything else you want to say about anthology films before we put a bow on this
2: nope it was a pretty sweet experience thanks I larry
1: is there anything where you'd like to direct our listeners to you on the internet or anything you'd like to promote?
2: Uh, well, shameless plug time. Bring it. Uh, buy my band's album. Do it. The Residuals is the name of the band, Knocking the Window Pane. Probably only available in Saskatoon at the moment, but mm-hmm. I like it. <laughs> and is there a website or anything for it? Uh, just on Facebook, you'll see Residuals there. If you want to visit any of our performances, we always post there. And secondly, if you want to, visit my blog, pharaohphobia.blogspot.com. And that's P-H-A-R-A-O-H. That's the correct way to spell pharaoh. <laughs> All right, Ferrophobia and the residuals to
1: Adrian Cook, uh big friend of the show, the namesake for our Jerrys. Thank you so much. For
2: You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
1: so it was that episode sweet 16 of ranking review came to an end i hope you enjoyed that and uh, thank you very much for listening if you'd like to give me some feedback let me know what I or jeremy got right or wrong you can do that at rank and review at gmail.com that's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com my name's larry parsons i'm your host and random canadian